Tonight, police body cam video is helping to fill in some of the details of what happened the night George Floyd died in police custody in Minneapolis. One officer is charged with murder, three others with aiding and abetting him. Here's CBS's Jeff Pegues. This cell phone video isn't the only video showing the moments leading up to George Floyd's death. This morning, by appointment only, a Minneapolis judge allowed the public to view body camera video from the officers involved. Thomas Lane and Jay Alexander King had their cameras activated when they arrived on scene. He starts saying, I can't breathe numerous times. WCCO reporter Jennifer Merrily, who saw the video, says that when officers tried to get Floyd into a squad car, the situation really deteriorated. It's where Floyd starts adamantly saying that he is claustrophobic, that he doesn't want to get in there. He's asking the officers to stay with them, to roll the window down. Body camera video transcripts last week revealed that Floyd told the officers he couldn't breathe more than 20 times and that Chauvin refused to ease up, saying, no, he's staying put where we got him. Floyd's family blames the training and attitude of police and today sued the four officers and the city of Minneapolis. It was the knee of the entire Minneapolis Police Department on the neck of George Floyd that killed him. The family lawsuit also reveals what it says are George Floyd's final words. About 30 seconds before he closes his eyes, he says, please, I can't breathe. Nora. Jeff Pegues with those disturbing details. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we take a look at a subject that's in on every newspaper heading and every network across this country regarding the killing and the death of George Floyd. Tonight, AJC Radio takes a look at what was going on then, what's going on now as the trial of Derek Chauvin continues to go forward and again, really causing the American people to have a wound reopened. And not only the American people, but the entire world that saw a man die begging for his life. This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Samson Riddle, Dave Zerpolo, uh, uh, William Williams, Dennis Merritt, Clint Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we visit this very important topic, looking at the killing of George Floyd and the census killing at that that took place in this man's life uh, that has really captured the attention of the entire world, not only a year ago, but also... Uh, as the trial is underway, as millions seek for justice for George Floyd. Uh, Samson, as we get ready to get into this conversation, uh, how important it is that we take a look at this, because we're finding out there's a lot of people that are hurting, and this trial has opened up a lot of wounds to a lot of people who have suffered injustice at the hands of police officers. 
your thoughts? Oh, absolutely right. I mean, we saw you saw an outcry on a global scale to the public, basically execution of George Floyd at the hands and more accurately the knee of the Minneapolis uh, Police Department. We're talking about a man that was under constant oxygen deprivation and pressure for over nine minutes, almost ten minutes of having somebody's knee, you know, on his neck, begging for his life. And now it comes back after they tried to smear his name, after they tried to make him look like, you know, some common criminal, the fact that, oh, no, that's really not the case. This man was a victim. He was begging for his life. He was calling out for his mother that had already passed away. And he just wanted to basically not be murdered in front of the world. And that's exactly what happened. So now we get to dig into the facts of the case where we have, you know, the trial that is going on right now for the murderous police officer, Officer uh, Chauvin. And then we have, you know, medical testimonies from, I think, at least three separate uh, doctors today, one of them at least being a, uh, a forensic toxicologist, uh, as well as a pulmonary doctor. So it's like, I'm in really interested to see what all has come out. I know I've heard a lot of the testimonies. I've, I've read some of the transcripts already. And the fact of the matter is, is what they've said and what the police are trying to say are two totally different stories. This man, no matter what they try and say, he did, did not deserve the death penalty. And I, I hope and pray that true justice is served on this police officer. Well, we're going to get into all of that tonight as it has been very troubling. Uh, as I have uh, tuned in uh, and the um, raw emotion of those that saw George Floyd die under the knee of Officer Chauvin uh, is an absolute disgrace. It is the most horrific thing uh, as you take a look at what goes on and what happens as a result of, of this type of barbaric attitude uh, with police officers. And I want to say this across the board. Uh, there were a lot of police officers at the death of George Floyd over a year ago uh, when that took place that were outraged, that said, look, we are not Officer Chauvin. That's not who we are. He doesn't represent us. He doesn't represent our department. To those that have become outraged as a result of this, I don't see how anyone could watch this as if when we saw it as this trial kicked off, uh, I think they're eight days in now, but as the trial kicked off from day one, and they begin to show those horrific pictures uh, and video of this man dying and begging for his mother and begging prior to ever going on the ground, begging, please do not shoot me, officer, please, please, I just lost my mom, please do not shoot me. He knew at that moment there was something very, very wrong getting ready to happen here, and we're going to deal with that. And, Again, folks, feel free to dial into the show tonight, 646-200-0628. We are aware that a lot of our listeners listen online. If you want to call in, you can also call in to 646-200-0628 uh, to get your comments. We'd love to hear what, uh, what your thoughts are as, as America and the world uh, is definitely standing by and watching. Uh, we're going to be joined later in this program uh, by a uh, Jody David Arma. He is a law professor and Arthur uh, he's going to be joining us, chiming in, uh, and he, he actually uh, is the Royal P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He's been a mem member of the faculty since 1995. Uh, we expect to have him joining the show here at the bottom of the hour. Also joining us uh, at, in the next hour is Brian Ross, Chief Investigative Correspondent at Law and Crime Network Journalist. You may know him. If you know anything about news, uh, Brian Ross was 
a, a staple at ABC News for quite some time. Uh, and he is, he is, I know he has something to say. It is our hope that both of these gentlemen are able to join us uh, as scheduled. Uh, we're going to get their perspective on the George Floyd uh, situation. Uh, again, folks, this is AJC Radio. Tonight we take a look at the killing, the murder, the horrific lynching, if you will, of George Floyd as we look back at the day America stood still. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. What's up, y'all? It's your boy Cam on stage, and I'm afraid I'll be killed by police. Not all police, just one police officer who fears for his life and thinks I have a gun. I'm afraid I'll match the description of someone who called 911, the police will arrive, and before I know it, I'll be dead. Not all cops are bad, but for me, all it takes is one who is afraid for his life, and that leaves me dead. He could have had a pristine record up until that, but if he's afraid that day, that means it's the end for me. He could have been a bad cop his whole entire career and not be afraid, that means the end for me. I used to think this wouldn't happen to me because I'm a law-abiding citizen. I won't ever be doing anything or be anywhere I shouldn't be. I'll comply with officers, but that doesn't always seem to be the case. Here's some examples of what black people were doing when they were killed by police. Selling CDs outside of a supermarket, selling cigarettes outside of a corner store, walking home with a friend, missing a front license plate, riding a commuter train, holding a fake gun in a park in Ohio, holding a fake gun in a Walmart in Ohio, holding a fake gun in Virginia, calling for help after a car accident, driving with a broken brake light, failing to signal a lane change, walking away from police, walking toward police, running to the bathroom in your apartment building, walking up the stairwell of your apartment building, sitting in your car before your bachelor party, holding your wallet, not wearing a seatbelt in police custody, attending a birthday party, laughing. The thing that makes me most afraid is I'll be afraid. I don't know what I'll do if a police officer has a gun pointed at me and is shouting instructions. I'm afraid I'll move too fast, too slow, not fast enough. I'll reach for something he asked me to reach for and he'll think it's a gun. I'm afraid I won't be calm and me not being calm could be the end of me. I'm afraid that I can die in front of my wife or children or both. I'm afraid my children will be somewhere without me and suffer the same fate. I'm afraid the police officer will be in plain clothing so they won't even recognize that this is a police officer and they don't respect him and treat him like the authority he is because they don't know he is. And here's what's gonna happen if I die. 
People will comment on a post about me and here's what they'll say. If he would have just done this, he would be alive today. If he would have just done that, he'd be alive today. All you have to do is listen to police and you'll be fine. If he would have just listened to the officer's orders, he'd be here today. If you care so much, why don't you care about what's happening in Chicago? What about black on black crime? Don't you care about that? The media will find the worst picture of me to use. And since I don't have any brushes with the law or mugshots, they'll find the most menacing or intimidating photo they can use. They won't use any of my wife or children or my family because that doesn't tell the story that they want to tell. Tammy Lauren will get on TV and tell them it was my fault or Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh will get on the radio. Fox News will have a field day with me. They'll say we don't have all the facts. The video doesn't clearly show. You don't know. What if he was? It looked like he was. You can't tell clearly. We can't see what's in his right hand or left hand. You don't know what the officers were feeling. The NRA won't protect me or protest my death even if I say I'm a licensed gun owner and I tell the police officer that when he pulls me over. The video will be posted all over the internet in a matter of seconds and whether or not you want to see it, you will see my dead body lying on the ground or a video of an officer shooting me or me dying live on Facebook. And then people will say it's not about race, we're all one people, all lives matter, and then life will go on. That's the scariest thing. After a while, life will go on. The officers may or may not get arrested. More than likely, they won't be convicted. More than likely, they won't even be indicted. And before you can totally mourn my death, it'll happen again. That's why I'm afraid. I wanted to be in the military since I, was, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs I hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight is we unfortunately must go down the road of memory uh, in regard to the killing, the senseless killing of uh, uh, George Floyd, who lost his life about a year ago. Uh, and as you know, the wound has been reopened uh, as a result of the uh, Derek Chauvin trial that's going on. And Derek Chauvin, if you're not familiar, which I would be surprised, but if you're not familiar, is the officer that kept his knee on the neck of George Floyd until his life uh, left his body. Basically killed him uh, and, and causing him not to have any oxygen to breathe, ultimately taking the life of George Floyd. And we're going to get into that here uh, tonight. And uh, right now I'm going to play you a clip real quick. It's a play-by-play of the death of George Floyd uh, for, for a few minutes. Give you an idea to digest this of what happened to this young man uh, is a tragedy. Uh, and the outcry and the protest that broke out in this, not only this country, but around the globe 
uh, is unprecedented. It has never been seen on that fashion uh, before. So we're going to take a listen to this clip, come back. We're going to discuss it as we wait for our guests to join us. Let's play the clip. It's just after 8 p.m. on May 25th, and the security cameras of this local restaurant are rolling. The indicated time is about 20 minutes fast. A blue Mercedes has been parked curbside on East 38th Street for several minutes. We do not have footage showing when it arrived. George Floyd is in the driver's seat. A police car pulls up in front of this local convenience store and two officers walk in. Minneapolis police said in a statement their officers responded to a report of a forgery in progress, meaning someone was trying to use counterfeit money in a store. A few minutes later, the officers crossed the street and approached the vehicle. The police said they found the suspect in his car. The first officer approaches the driver while his partner walks around to the passenger side. The interaction between the officer and Floyd can't clearly be seen from this angle, but the driver of this black vehicle filmed part of it on his phone. The officer struggles to get Floyd out of the car. His colleague walks over to help him put the handcuffs on. The black car pulls away and drives off after a few minutes. Floyd falls briefly to the ground. The officer lifts him back up before leading him towards the sidewalk where he directs Floyd to sit on the ground. A park police car shows up to the scene. Redacted body cam footage from that new officer was released by the park police chief. The officer exits the car to see his two colleagues questioning Floyd and two people who were just in the car. A few minutes later, the officer helps Floyd up off the ground. The video has no sound, so we don't know what was said between the two officers and Floyd in this moment. They walk him across the street back towards their squad car. Floyd falls to the ground once more. Police originally said they noticed Floyd going into medical distress and called an ambulance to the scene. Another police car pulls up, obstructing our view from this angle and making it hard to clearly see what unfolded in the next four minutes between the officers and Floyd. We do see Officer Chauvin pull up to the scene with his colleague. And behind the vehicle's open door, we can make out what seems to be a struggle. Whatever was happening between Floyd and the officers at that very moment caught the attention of this passerby who stops to watch. Two minutes later, a witness standing on Chicago Avenue captures part of the scene unfolding behind the squad car. One officer looks over as three of his colleagues restrain Floyd, who is lying face down on the ground in handcuffs. We don't know how Floyd ended up on the ground. One officer is pressing his knee into Floyd's neck, which we see clearly in this video, taken only seconds later by another witness standing in front of the grocery store. She captured the next 10 minutes of his deadly arrest up until he is taken away in an ambulance. Well, uh, there you have it. Uh, the really play-by-play and as you hear George Floyd in distress, um, he was not a threat to anyone. 
He's not a threat to anyone. And you try to figure out what would cause a officer when he says to the officer Chauvin that I cannot breathe. Officer Chauvin never changed his facial expression. He continued really to double down on the neck of George Floyd. Clint, when you hear George Floyd, we heard it briefly, but you're going to hear more of that here momentarily. He is saying, please, to this officer and those that had him restrained, I cannot breathe. The argument and a lot of controversy that came out was the fact that this is first-degree murder. If, you, if me and you were in some type of altercation, and I had you in a position where you said to me, Lamont, I cannot breathe, and I'm choking you, I can guarantee you they're not coming back with manslaughter. If I continue to hold you down in that position, ultimately costing you your life, the outrage was how can this man beg for his life and you do nothing and then you want to say, well, we don't know if we can charge him with first-degree murder. That is murder in the first degree. Absolutely. When you hear that, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. It looks like uh, Derek Chauvin was not one of the original officers that handcuffed uh, George Floyd that came on the scene, as we heard in that, in that previous clip. But, you know, I wanted to uh, – the New York Post uh, published an article that uh, they wrote – uh, recapping some research that, uh, that occurred last year in 2020, they said it was the murder rate in America reached unprecedented levels, that we have not seen this level of murder in the United States in the history of our country. This uh, research was done by the National Commission of COVID-19 and Criminal Justice, and they said that the police violence was a part of the rise in the unprecedented murder rate. So we definitely want to hear from the friendly police, the professional police that are doing the job right, that are not identifying with Derek Chauvin and speak out uh, to this situation uh, where police are contributing to the unprecedented murder rate in America. Well, it's the culture, number one, that's happening in these police departments across the country, uh, whether it was in St. Louis with Michael Brown's killing there, uh, all that took place in that, uh, all places in Florida, the things we've heard of the killings down there, uh, um, Walter Scott's killing uh, as he walked away, uh, was shot uh, Eric Gardner out of New York City who was selling cigarettes on the corner, uh, no threat. Uh, these cases now have legs yeah. because now you say as George Floyd leaves his daughter, and she made a statement. They had the little girl on, on a family member's shoulders, and she said, uh, my dad shook up the world. He shook up the world, but it cost him his life. Yeah. Uh, these things have been going on. We now, through George Floyd's, it, 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 shouldn't, it should not have taken the death of George Floyd for people to cry out against the system and what is going on in this country. The George Floyd situation, for whatever reason, hit a chord in, in the hearts of people of every race, of every religion, of every background. To see a man, see, we don't see these things. Mm -hmm. Just take some time back and say, when we didn't have 
cams everywhere. We didn't have cell phones with cams. How many people suffered torture? George Floyd was tortured to death. The most a horrible way to die. Uh, how many people lost their lives that was never recorded because of this culture? That's true. And how many people would stand against George Floyd? The, the world is forced in a position to say this cannot be tolerated. This cannot be tolerated. Go ahead, William. Well, you know, what you're hitting on is the fact that we've seen this repetitively for years. You brought up Michael Brown. Freddie Gray died in custody in Baltimore in the hands of six police officers while he was in transit. You talk about Walter Scott. That video was caught over the fence by a bystander who saw the police officer drop something suspicious next to him. Next to him. Now, you, Laquan McDonald shot 16 times. You, you, I mean, and we've seen this for years, years and years. And the thing about it is what makes this case stand out so much is that it was recorded for nine minutes, a man pleading for his life and lost it. And no one was able to do anything. If you look at the people that were there on trial, you, the one that stood out to me was the female firefighter. And she said she was there at the scene was saying to them, he is having problems breathing. I could get in there and help. I could. She was offering assistance. She even offered to tell them what to do because they were trying to crowd control. And so, it was. It's. It's really. It's really important for us to understand. We watched a man literally lose his life for nine minutes, and no one could do anything. And I think that's the thing about all of this: the helplessness. You saw the people that 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 testified they were there was a sense of we can't do anything we're here we're professionals we cannot help this man because of the situation that they're in and it's and it's so so really when you look at this you have to to your point ask yourself how many cases how many people how many George Floyd's has there been in the past couple of years how many George Floyd's and then they turn around and they they muddy the water. They they tear down the character of this person. Try to try to make it like it was justified. You know, the police was justified. And in this case, we've seen the tearing down of the blue wall. We see, we've seen the police chief talking about these tactics were not approved. These were not authorized tactics used to restrain or taught by the Minneapolis Police Department to restrain people. So now, when you look at this, it's this is. It gets uglier and uglier and deeper and deeper. And we have to ask this of ourselves, how nasty this whole situation is across our country. We see all these cases, all these questions, we cases we call in question and say, I wonder if, I wonder if, if it's a possibility that we just took for granted that this, this police officer, his word versus somebody else and that person lost their life. Well, it happens all the time. This was not one of those occasions uh, that we can point to where that happened. Um, this is something that, that has to be looked at. Uh, right now, we talked, we talked a little bit, um, uh, William, regarding the emotional uh, testimonies, which I had the opportunity to see. Uh, they've compiled some of those as well of what these people have suffered, the tears, the pain. Nobody knows how deep that pain goes. To those that saw it, and that firefighter that you speak of, 
wanted to help, wanted to help, which is supposed to be working in cooperation with law enforcement and other uh, responders and things like that, and you refused this lady to help and save this man's life. That goes back again to first-degree murder. You withheld care for this man when it was offered to help him. You said no. Uh, let's play the clip uh, that talks a little bit about the emotions of what was going on during this trial thus far. New video released in day three of the Derek Chauvin trial. You can see George Floyd inside a store where he went to buy cigarettes. It was that purchase that prompted a call to police. The clerk who sold Floyd the cigarettes suspected that the money that was being used was counterfeit. Moments later, Floyd was arrested outside of that store. While on the stand today, the clerk from the store testified that he has felt guilt for calling police. Today, we also heard from more bystanders who witnessed Floyd's death. ABC's Trevor Alt has the latest from the courtroom. Jurors in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin hearing today from Christopher Martin, the clerk at Cup Foods who received the counterfeit $20 bill from George Floyd on the day he died. When I um, saw the bill, I noticed that it had a blue pigment to it, kind of how a $100 bill will have, and I found that odd, so I assumed that it was fake. The prosecution playing surveillance video from both inside and outside the store as Barton described how he felt that day. Uh, disbelief. Thank you. Why guilt? Um, if I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. The jury also hearing from Christopher Belfry, who recorded the incident from his car. We've seen them placing him in the police car, so that's all I've seen. And I'm kept on driving. I thought he was detained. I thought it was over, so I kept on going home. Over the past three days, the jury has heard from numerous witnesses to Floyd's death, including Genevieve Hansen, a firefighter and EMT who was off duty that day and begged officers to let her help. And when you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally distressed. Frustrated? Yes. Darnella Frazier, the teenager who recorded that now viral video of Floyd's death, also took the stand. I heard George Floyd saying, <clears throat> I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. He, he cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. Chauvin is facing manslaughter and second and third degree murder charges to which he has pleaded not guilty. The three other officers involved in Floyd's death go on trial later this year. Trevor Alt, ABC News, New York. Well, there you have it. Uh, really heart-wrenching. Uh, the firefighter there. Um, this is what this is what she does. Uh, you go in and help a person that is in distress. I cannot begin to wrap my hands around the nightmares in your mind to physically witness a killing of this magnitude and to hear the voice of George Floyd beg for his life, his mother who had passed a couple of years prior to this moment 
And I remember they showed one clip where he said, I love you, mama. Scared to death knowing that this is probably it. It's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Uh, we're going to get into that now. I want to introduce our next guest. Uh, our first guest tonight of the evening, Jody Armour. Uh, he is uh, the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He's been a member of the faculty since 1995. Uh, Mr. Armour's expertise ranges from personal injury claims to claims about relationship between racial, and racial justice, criminal justice, and the rule of law. Uh, studies the intersection of race and legal decision-making as well as torts and tort reform movements. Mr. Armour, are you with us tonight? Yes, it's good to be with you. Thank you, Mr. Armour. We appreciate you taking a few minutes, uh, some time out of your schedule this evening to have a discussion, though difficult, uh, as the world relives and opens the wounds of the death of George Floyd. Your perspective is absolutely valued. And uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself Outside of what I've already said, of course, uh, what you do, but give us your thoughts. I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far as we revisit this tragedy, this killing of George Floyd. The floor is yours. Yeah, well, my thoughts are go back to my own dad, who I lost when I was eight years old in a Brianna Taylor style raid of our home. Mm -hmm. uh, my seven brothers, sisters and I were lined up and we saw our dad prostrate on the ground in the same kind of position you see you, uh, George Floyd in, um, although he did not happen to have an uh, officer's knee on his neck. My dad didn't at that time. And he was given 22 to 55 years for possession and sale of marijuana. And so we lost him as a family unit because that's what's been going on as part of the criminal justice process in America for generations, family separation, right? Um, and so we suffered that family separation and I looked at the, what was happening to George Floyd, and I saw another example of the state intervening into a black man's life and wreaking havoc. And that's really what this has to be kept um, in mind, what really has to be kept in mind in all of this, that, you know, a lot of times people get the issues twisted when we're talking about police brutality and violence at the hands of police officers. Oftentimes, I've heard our own chief of police here in L.A., former chief of police, um, say in a commission, uh, open commission meeting that um, the, the police are not really nearly as damaging to the black community as other blacks because black on black violence causes a lot more harm, he would say, than blue on black violence. And I had to stand up at this commission meeting and say to this um, Police Chief Beck, Charlie Beck was his name. He was saying, I said, well, Charlie Beck, as I recall, when, uh, when we had fallen officers in Dallas and Baton Rouge after Philando Castile was killed with a little girl in the back seat and a few people snapped and shot officers, you rightly said that we should not do that. And you even went so far as to fly the flag at half mast and to say an attack on an officer is an attack on America. Well, by the same token, an attack by an officer on an innocent black person is not an attack by an ordinary citizen on another ordinary citizen. That's an attack by America on that innocent that's right. black man that, or woman, right? And so that's yes. what I really try to keep in mind in thinking about this issue. Uh, Mr. Armour, you know, we're talking about America. We're talking about 
you know, that was America shooting Walter Scott in the back six times when he was going away, America dragging Sandra Bland out of that car and brutalizing her, and America with its knee on, on George Floyd's neck. No, absolutely right. Uh, so let me ask you a question. Uh, we were talking earlier regarding the impact of George Floyd's death around the world, the protests that broke out around the globe, Australia, New England, uh, I'm excuse me, sorry, England, the, everywhere across this country in numbers we've never seen before. We have never seen, at least in my time, I've never seen numbers like that where people were everywhere uh, in all languages and different cultures crying about, crying out about this killing of George Floyd. Have you ever seen anything on that level that we have seen in this case? You know, it was jaw-dropping. You know, it was a generational upheaval that we saw. You, and I wasn't really aware enough. I wasn't old enough to be aware of things in the 60s. I hear that there was a similar kind of energy in the air. But even people I know who were active then say that this is extraordinary, even by that stand, or even by those standards. And it's the result of, it didn't happen out of thin air. It didn't happen by chance. It's the result of, the Black Lives Matter activism, grassroots activism, starting back in 2013 when George Zimmerman was acquitted and the Black Lives Matter hashtag was birthed. In 2014, Mike Brown, the movement grows. And you can remember in 2014, 15, and 16, we had lots of marches and lots of streets. And the infrastructure for the movement started to build. The network of activists started to build. The cameras went away in 2016, the television cameras, when Trump came in, 17, 18. But the Black Lives Matter organizers kept on organizing, kept in, you know, strengthening the sinews of connection among them until, you know, for example, here in L.A., for example, they, every week Black Lives Matter was getting out in front of Jackie Lacey, the L.A. black woman, L.A. Uh, D.A., and protesting her failure to hold police accountable for three years in a row, every Wednesday, and she was ultimately ousted in a recent election. So that, so all that infrastructure was there, so that when the George Floyd moment came along, there was already a strong, continuing movement infrastructure there that it built on, you know? And then it, it did, it was, it was so heartening to see the world, you know, empathizing and sympathizing and trying to feel some of the pain of black America um, and black folk and, and then, then black, not only American, black folks around the globe. You know, once we start to say black lives matter, we can't confine that to just national boundaries, right? You start to say, wait, I have some of my students who are Asian students. They say dark skinned Asians are discriminated against. You know, I have some yes. of my students who are Latino students. They'll say, you know, my Afro Latino and Latina brothers and sisters are discriminated against. So black lives matter became an international kind of cry. No, for sure. David? Yeah, uh, Mr. Armour, thank you for being here. I got to, and I'm so grateful for cameras now that, that we can expose some of this stuff. But I remember Barack Obama said black people aren't making this stuff up. And given to the advent of uh, cell phone cameras and stuff like that, the world is actually starting to see uh, what's actually going on and what we're saying is actually true. I just want your comments. Uh, I see the same perpetuation of the of the dangerous, uh, fearful, or, or a black man to be feared. The defense strategy in this case appears to be that this big black drug animal named George Floyd was so dangerous that Officer Chauvin 
could not risk getting off his neck or rendering aid, uh, especially when there was a crowd of rabid, uh, rabid dogs waiting to attack him. That seems to be the posture of the defense in this case. But even now, we're able to see that, that they're still trying to perpetuate and demonize the black man that he should be dead because of the way culturally we've uh, the country has uh, presented black men. Can you would you like to comment on that for me, please? Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you the exact legal relevance of that of that stereotype and that vile trope of dangerous big black men. You know, we know it's out there. It's a constant cliche that is used to, um, you know, uh, really cause a lot of harm to black folk. Um, and it's the reason you hear about it so much and see it so much is it's effective. It works at the heart of any case like this. Uh, which is going to be kind of a self-defense case, although it's going to be kind of reasonable force, self-defense kind of case, because, you know, the idea is this is a dangerous suspect, and so you have to defend yourself against, you know, violent outbursts by him of some kind. So he's essentially a kind of self-defense case, right? At the heart of every self-defense case is the same legal requirement, the reasonable person test. The question is always the same. Would a reasonable person, or in this case, a reasonable officer in the same situation have feared, um, have feared, you know, violence from George Floyd? And that's a, that's a test that's taken from Graham, a Supreme Court case that said when it comes to determining whether police have exceeded their Fourth Amendment, you know, kind of rights and have, you know, in some way uh, violated a person's um, Fourth Amendment protections, we look at whether a reasonable police officer would have realized that he was causing harm here. And so what, what does reasonable mean? Reasonable means whatever a jury says it means. That's what it means. Reasonable means you give the, 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 the facts to the jury, you give them a legal standard that says if he reasonably feared for his life or feared for his safety, then what he did was right. If he did not, then what he did was wrong, and then you let them go back and deliberate using that very flexible, open-ended reasonableness standard. And if at the end of the day, what that really means is if they sympathetically identify with him, they're going to say that what he did was reasonable. If they don't sympathetically identify with him, they're going to say that what he did was unreasonable. And so it really comes down to how much sympathy they have for him versus how much sympathy they have for his victim, George Floyd. And a lot of times, jurors have more sympathy for white officers than black victims, especially if they're white jurors, but a lot of other jurors as well, non-black jurors, and sometimes even black jurors can have some internalized self-hate and internecine feelings that, that they need to deal with and process, right? So that is what to look out for. It's another example of will the legal system allow biases and prejudices against blacks to come through the jury box? through the jurors' own biases and own prejudices and determine the outcome of the case. And that often is what happens. Uh, and that's uh, an unfortunate situation. Uh, there are things that we've seen over the course of years that you thought for sure that there was enough here that something would happen and justice would be found. I can tell you some of the people that I have talked to have shared extreme concern that if they come back with a not guilty uh, for Derek Shulman, if we thought the outcry was huge last summer, 
that we have not even begun to scratch the surface with what, what, what we may see. Um, you know, as I've watched thus far, uh, to me, just seeing what we've seen, we'd be hard-pressed to not come back with a guilty verdict. And hey, again, man, as I, listen, yeah. listen, my brother, I got to tell you something. Man, I know you want to say that. I want to say it. We all want to say it. You want to look at something and you want to say it's plain as day, right? right. That up is up, down is down. But man, look, I'm here in L.A., right? In 1991, there was a video that came out that was pretty much as incriminating and damning as any video you could ever see of Rodney King getting beaten like an animal by brutal police, right? And that video saturated the airwaves. And everybody thought it was a slam dunk. Even the, the, the chief of police at the time said, oh, yeah, I thought too, that they went overboard. You know, the video was, not, was supposed to be so knocked down, right? And, but when yep. the Sini Valley jury got a hold of that video and then those four officers went on trial, they acquitted all four of them. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. And, you know, uh, Jody, Mr. Armour, sorry. Um, no, in, I grew in, up in, in LA. Way, brother, I'm cool. Right, right. Okay, I appreciate that. I grew up in L.A. And uh, the time Rodney King, Rodney King lived on my street. And the one thing I remember when that happened, I remember the, I mean, going back to your point about the stereotypes, they put a label on us. In the 80s, I was a teenager. They put a label on us called us super predators. 13-year-old boys, these are super predators. They have been armed and they will go out and carry out the will of their masters that have told them basically slaughter everybody on the street. A total fabrication, but it was believed by the mass public that Mm -hmm. young black men, that's what we're out there in the streets doing. You say like any reasonable officer, would he have thought his life was in danger in the George Floyd situation? If you put a tag on the black man that this is uh this is a wild creature in the in the in the urban society he came from the jungle Mm -hmm. but he is just as dangerous as any lion any panther any leopard he will destroy you if he gets his hands on you that goes to your point of you can have that video like rodney king getting beat hammered with batons you've been beat with one of those cherry stick batons it takes one hit to understand one hit is enough to make you stop. Mm-hmm. The tag that they put on black men is what uh, gives your point that the jury could come back and say, hey, a reasonable officer could feel that his life could have still been in jeopardy because even though a man, a black man is handcuffed, he's incapacitated. He's saying, I can't breathe. His eyes are rolling back in the head. They're going bloodshot. His speech is slurring. But if you let him go, he's a super predator and that's what they lean on and say any officer would feel like his life is in danger in that situation well man yes you're hitting the nail squarely and this is how i would uh shore that up even more agree with it and add even more uh volume to it amplify it um you know i i uh, published a book uh, recently titled in asterisk gga theory race 
language, unequal justice in the law. And the reason I put the N word in my title and zero in on that particular way of talking about black people in particular by some is that when we monsterize, demonize, otherize, or as I call it in my book, niggerize black criminals or black people in general, but especially black criminals, what we wind up doing is putting them entirely on the other side of our care and concern. We rob them of humanity and we rob them of any even modicum of decency and respect. Now, notice that's what they always do. The first thing you're going to say is, well, he was breaking the law. It was a counterfeit, you know, uh, 20, wasn't it? Or with Eric Gardner. Well, why was he selling the Lucy? Or, you know, it, they always find a way to say, unless you're a Dudley damn do-right, morally immaculate, then you don't deserve to be respected by the police. You don't deserve to be respected as a human being, shown any kind of minimal human decency, right? And, and right. we have often in the black community played into that narrative. We have ourselves. So, for example, you know, it wasn't just white folks in the 80s and 90s talking about black super predators. Uh, one of the reasons, I, another reason I have the N-word in my title is the comedic career that launched um, Chris Rock's career, uh, comedic routine that launched his career in 96, Bring the Pain. He goes back and forth in front of just about all black audience in Chocolate City and says, like a civil war going on in black America, and there's two sides. There's black people and there's N-words. I'll spare your listeners now. There's N-words. And N-words have got to go. I love black people, but I hate N-words. Boy, I wish they'd let me join the Ku Klux Klan. Shoot, I do a drive-by from here to Brooklyn. And he goes on like that for, for 20 minutes talking about N-words and what's his core definition of an N-word? A black person who's done a crime. That becomes the one that's the punchline. We're all laughing at it. But by that definition, the up to 90 percent of young black males in some of these inner city neighborhoods are going to wind up in jail on probation or on parole at some point in their lives are N-words. What? We're willing to consign, condemn 90 percent of our own youth to N-word status? Yes, that, that's how we were talking and thinking in the 90s in our own community. And fortunately, we've come a long way and we're starting to recognize how retrograde that was, but we can't forget, or we're likely to slide back into that politics of respectability approach to our own community. No, without question, Ms. Armour. Uh, how are you on time with us right now? Can you come back after the break and continue this dialogue? A absolutely. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what you're listening to tonight on AJC Radio, we're talking about the George Floyd killing. Uh, what's What happened then? What's happening now as the trial is underway? And what Mr. Armour says here uh, is very troubling. Uh, you'd like to believe, as, as he pointed out, that this will, justice will be found. You'd like to believe that. The fact that it is even a possibility that it could go the other way is absolutely troubling in every aspect. We're going, to deal, we're going to continue our discussion with Mr. Armour. Uh, feel free, folks, if you want to call in or you're just sitting back taking it all in, that's fine, too. But you can call in to 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. We're talking tonight the senseless killing of George Floyd. Where are we a year later as the trial is underway seeking justice for George Floyd and all that support him. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. 
Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silenced, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're gonna write you a run-on sentence, on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-kind, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect, with the smallest slip up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're gonna join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in a Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. 
We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dilson. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Dude Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for a natural disaster. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we reflect, if you will, on one of the most horrific killings seen not only by the folks here in the United States, but around the world. The death of George Floyd, the horrific, uh, someone called it a modern day lynching, uh, that we saw this man die under the knee of Derek Chauvin, uh, the ex police officer in, 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 in Minneapolis. Um, I'll tell you what, as we have looked at the trial this week, uh, as it started some eight days ago, uh, the emotion is equally as raw today uh, as it was a year ago. As we have relived the horror of what George Floyd suffered, what his family must, as they see these clips played, what horror they must be going through. Uh, we've been honored to have uh, Jody Armour joining us tonight, has given a really a clear perspective uh, of exactly the problem uh, and all the things that have happened and as a result of really a long-term condition and a long-term problem. Uh, in the African African American community, uh, Mr. Armour, you back with us? Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you so much again, uh, Mr. Armour, for being with us. Your perspective is is definitely appreciated, uh, as we have had the troubling uh, task of going down this road again. So, 
Uh, I believe, Dennis, you had a comment regarding what we have seen here. Uh, go ahead and share with Mr. Mr. Armin, our listeners, your thoughts as we have tried our best to take another look at this most horrific situation. Yes, uh, as we as everybody was talking, I was thinking about how, uh, you know, we really need to look at this case. This case is is huge. Uh, I understand the, the, the comments in reference to, you know, the, the what's already in place, you know, how, how you know, uh, most of the time uh, officers are acquitted. Uh, but in this case, I think we really need to look at, uh, I think this is it's going to be a turn. And I think either a good or a bad way, uh, we're going to find out if the trust, if all the uh, protests, all the movements, if, uh, if if they'll play a role in the decision that's going to take place in uh, uh, this, this 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 court uh, theme uh, with uh, what's going on today, because we have to understand that if if the, if if he if Chavez is, if he is not if he, if he's not uh you know charged or if he gets acquitted we're going to have some major problems because right now uh everybody's looking at this and we're hoping that uh we're going to come to a conclusion that everybody's starting to look at uh it's time to do the right thing it's time to come together again and make sure that what happens in this court courtroom uh is the right it, it makes the right decision no, without question. And again, Derek Chauvin, uh, the officer, ex-officer who was uh, charged, uh, facing trial right now for the for the for the killing, really, of uh, of George Floyd. Uh, we had talked earlier, uh, uh, and Mr. Armour, I want to get your thoughts on this. I'm going to play a clip. Uh, we said earlier that a lot of times, what happens when you begin to see what was exposed, really, uh, in the, in the George Floyd killing. Uh, we begin to see a culture in police departments across the country. Um, and as we talked about, uh, uh, again, you being from L.A., uh, we had a story uh, that was brought to my attention right before the show, and I want to play it. Uh, L.A. cops arrested wrong man as he was taking out trash. Just released body cam shows that that distress. We're going to play the clip right now. Uh, Mr. Armour, I'm going to get your thoughts on it since this is really in your backyard, okay? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay, let's play the clip. Newly released body camera footage of Los Angeles police arresting a black man who is simply taking out the trash. TJ Holmes talked to Anton Austin and his girlfriend about the incident, and he joins us now with more. Good morning, TJ. Good morning, Stray. And add now to the lexicon of hashtags, taking out the trash while black. We're about to show you video of an incident that took place nearly two years ago, but we're only seeing it now as part of a racial profiling lawsuit against the LAPD. Many parts of this you will find disturbing and chilling to hear police admit as they're arresting this man that we don't know who we're looking for. You're hearing the desperate screams of Anton Austin, a black man who was simply taking out his trash when two Los Angeles police officers approached to arrest him. This newly released body cam footage shows part of the disturbing incident from May of 2019. The LAPD was responding to a domestic violence call. But police spot Austin from their vehicle taking out his trash and listen as they decide to approach him. 
because I told you to. Turn around. What are you doing, bro? I live here. We got a call. We got a call. Okay, man. I don't know who I'm looking for yet. No, Come on. Step, 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 turn around, man. What is your problem, dude? You hear the officer admit he doesn't have a suspect description, but continues to arrest Austin, who continues to question the police. Tensions rise. What are you doing? Austin yells for help. His girlfriend says she heard Austin's screams from the shower and rushed outside, trying to intervene, and ends up in the struggle and is disrobed in the process. Both were arrested. The couple is now suing the city of Los Angeles. What was your reaction once you went back and actually saw it all play out and you got to actually hear the officers in the car before they got out? In your mind, you want to say to yourself, oh, you know, the first thing I'll just have because I'm black and then you won't want to be that petty. You don't want to be that small. You don't want to really believe that people's thinking is really that 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 on that low of a scale. Right. And then when you watch the footage and you hear the guy in the car, you know, like the girl in the 911 call told them to go to a restaurant that was three blocks away from my house. Austin's neighbor who made that initial 911 call about her ex-boyfriend did not give a description of him to the dispatcher. That neighbor can be seen in the video telling the officers Austin was not the man she called about, but they continue with the arrest. The attorney for Austin calls this a clear case of racial profiling. Police should not rule up and immediately think that this person is a criminal. And unfortunately, that's exactly what LAPD did. Neither Los Angeles police nor city attorneys are commenting to ABC News. Austin fought for the release of this footage and says he's relieved the public now gets to see what he went through. It's crazy that they can just convict you when they're supposed to be there to as mediator, there to serve, protect, find out what's going on. You know, um, that they in their minds are the judge and the jury and they're going to convict you on the spot based on what you look like. It's really it's really um, eye opening, you know, um, it changed the way I look at a lot of things. Now, the city of Los Angeles did fight the release of that video, saying it would have a chilling effect on investigations, police investigations down the road, and it was against policy anyway. Now, Tone and his girlfriend have since moved from that neighborhood. They are seeking $3 million in damages, but they also simply want an apology, which they have not got. And guys, one other thing. Their attorney says that the suspect the police were actually after was a white male. Well, you can see why they didn't want that tape out. Yeah. And that's Amazing. why body cams are so important for so. a lot of reasons, but that is ve a very specific one. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Makes right. you shake your head. Yeah, thank you, TJ. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, you have to be kidding me right now. This man... Okay. Mr. Arm, I'm going to get your thoughts here in a moment, but I want to chime in on this one. You go to a man's house taking out the trash at his resonance and he's telling the he's telling these cops they say well man who are you looking for uh we don't know why are you in my yard why are you at my house and this is a producer anton is a producer uh and you have your wife or, or girlfriend coming out of the house because you're screaming her name to say look help and you just she do the struggle, she becomes disrobed. You have got to be kidding me. But this goes back to what we talk about. The culture in America is in trouble when it comes to police officers. And we say it on this show, we say it all the time. You got some good officers out there, officers that care, officers that are outraged when they hear things like this. Our hats are off to you.
But what in the world happens to these officers as we revisit George Floyd? Somebody could have been killed in that at, in that backyard, at that house. Someone literally could have died, and then they come to the end of it and say, "Well, oh, the LAPD didn't want to release the video because it could have bad consequences." Uh, well, what do you think doing this is going to have, Mr. Armour? Your thoughts on it? I agree with you 100%. You know, there's nothing else you can say uh, about the profiling proclivity of the LAPD and police departments across the nation. I wrote my early critical race theory scholarship was on unconscious bias and the nature of unconscious bias. And, you know, back then, over 20 years ago now, we didn't call it implicit bias. We called it bias rooted in the cognitive unconscious. And there are all of these studies that I, you know, got into and I went around on a tour around the country talking to police departments, correctional officers, associations, judges and all kinds of other people about unconscious bias. How We have these mental reflex type groups and the, they cause us to have, you know, discriminatory uh, uh, impulses and responses to them. And I thought, man, you know, I'm really saying something. This is going to help us with ro- profiling. Once people learn that they have these unconscious tendencies, they can fight against them and we can get better. Now I've realized, you know, 20 plus years later that I was way too optimistic about what could happen as a result of, you know, unconscious bias training, learning about implicit bias. What we've learned more than ever in recent studies are saying it over and over is, yes, it's true. Americans, all Americans have these unconscious biases that have been you know, established in their memories from a very early age and can run automatically without their conscious awareness. Yes, all that's true. But what's also true is we can do very little to control them. Just knowing you have them doesn't allow you to control them. And that's what we used to hope, that maybe we would be able to, once we knew we were subject to unconscious bias, we could somehow control it. And so if we told police officers, hey, Y'all are subject to unconscious bias against black people. Now, we know that's true. We see it in the laboratory. And if we tell you that, you'll be able to control yourself. You'll you'll be able to self-regulate your unconscious bias. And what we've learned now is that's totally false, that they cannot control their unconscious biases. They They have them, they just can't control them. And so what that means is the only way you're going to minimize harm to black and other stereotype communities from police officers as a result of the stereotypes and unconscious biases that they have in their, in their minds and can't get rid of is to minimize their contact with members of stereotype communities, right? We have to unbundle the police. Some people call it defund the police, unbundle, whatever you want to call it. We have to reduce the number of interactions between police and members of stereotype groups and blacks, for example, because they can't control their unconscious biases. So they're going to profile. They're not going to be able to stop doing that. So, you know, don't uh, we I used to naively be one of those people out there pushing the implicit bias training remedy. And I regret it. I'm trying to make amends for it. I'm sorry. It's been a bitter pill to swallow to say I realize the limitations of some earlier interventions. But it's all led us to where we are now. The recognition that defunding and unbundling the police is the only real solution to these problems. No, absolutely right, uh, Mr. Armour. And I want to get your thoughts on something else, too. Um, And, William, did you have a comment you wanted to make for Mr. Armour? Well, I was just 
I guess you are also mentioned uh, and brought up the whole situation with Rodney King. And so I, I, I was wanting to know how do you see – how do you compare the Rodney King situation, what you saw back then, to the case that you're seeing right now? What do you – I mean, is there some striking similarities that stand out to you or just – I just wanted to get your thoughts. Oh, yeah, a lot of striking similarities. You know, this is uh, – you know, Rodney King was the first videotape that we saw. It was the first time Rodney King case, 91 – was the first time that you started seeing round-the-clock video news, right? They had suddenly this cable news, and you could turn on the cable TV pass station anytime, and there was news, you know, at, at, at 2 in the morning, there's the, there's the news channel, right? And so Rodney King was came out during that time. So you saw Rodney King saturating the airwaves. Every time you turned on the TV, you saw Rodney King being beaten down by those uh, LAPD officers, right? And so... And that way, there were some similarities. Now, the Rodney King tape wasn't eight minutes, you know, and 46 seconds or nine minutes and 29 seconds. It wasn't that long. And it, it, it wasn't as emotionally gripping and embroiling as the George Floyd is where, you know, the gasp of breath and, uh, and, the, and, and the pitch of his voice and the distress and all of that. You didn't get that granular detail with the Rodney King video. But but you did get a lot of emotional impact from it, uh, not quite on this level. Um, and we weren't as aware then of how much of a part of a pattern this behavior was. A lot of people saying, "Oh, these are just some bad apples. Look, this is these are some officers who we caught them, and isn't it horrible? And it, it's just, but these are just a few isolated bad apples." But now, by the time we got to George Floyd, we know that it's anything but a few isolated incidents, that actually police brutality, anti-black police brutality is baked into law enforcement in a lot of ways and, and, and across the country because anti-blackness is baked into our cultural belief system. And police are people, too. And Americans are, uh, in all walks of life, have, many of walks of life, have anti-black biases in them. So when you give Americans who have anti-black biases in them, a gun with loaded ammunition, then a stun gun, then a billy club, and then mace, and then handcuffs. When you give when you give them the status of violence workers, in other words, because that's all police are, violence workers. When you give violence, when you take ordinary people who have these anti-black biases, you make them violence workers, don't be surprised if they don't then cause disproportionate harm to the black community. We just have to minimize the interactions between these violence workers and members of the black community by unbundling the police and reducing the functions that they serve so that they're only going after violent crimes. We need that. We need to get rapists off the street. We need to get murders off the street. We need those crimes solved, but we don't need police doing a lot of broken windows policing, quality of life policing, cracking down on houseless people. All that stuff shouldn't be part of their purview. No, absolutely right. And, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I believe this conversation is going to be going on for quite some time. And Mr. Armour, I do uh, want to take a minute also to be respectful of your time. The, the perspective you've given this story tonight uh, is, is priceless, and I appreciate you so much. Uh, how can folks get a hold of you if they need to speak with you, if they need to get uh, with you? I think you have a lot to say. And I would like to hear yes. about his books uh, and where can we get his books. The, Negro, the Negrophobia book seems to be of interest to me. Tell our listeners, right on. Mr. Armour. Yes. Right on. Negrophobia. My first book was Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, The Hidden Cost of Being Black in America. It deals a lot with these racial profiling issues we're talking about. My most recent book, um, 
um, does a lot with rap, hip-hop culture, and all this other stuff we've been talking about is in asterisk, DGA theory, race, language, unequal justice, and the law. Um, my Twitter handle connected to my book is at N-I-G-G-A theory. Um, and my, my uh, um, uh, um, you know, uh, internet connection is, our website is jodyarmour.com, J-O-D-Y-A-R-M-O-U-R.com. All right, Mr. Armour, very, very, again, a very, very special thank you to you tonight. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back here on AJC. If there's something you need to uh, promote, push out what's, what's going on, your perspective is always welcome here at AJC Radio. Please feel free and know you have a friend here at AJC Radio on the Just Cause organization. We appreciate you so very much. Thank you so much, my brother. Stay strong. I love what you're doing. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Take care. And there you have it, Jody Armour. Uh, some real true perspective uh, into the George Floyd killing. Uh, and I think he, you know, he said he was optimi- too optimistic about certain changes uh, that could happen in our society going years back. And here we are in 2021 facing a, a really a, a trial that we shouldn't even be talking about because George Floyd should be alive right now. And we're here again. Uh, that tells you the problem and, and the major issue, uh, major problem that we're having right now. Um, uh, and we appreciate uh, Mr. Armour and his time tonight uh, for giving his perfect perspective on this topic. Uh, right now, I want to turn the page here of the show as we bring in Brian Ross. Uh, if you know anything about the media, news, anything like that, Brian Ross uh, and his resume speaks for itself. Uh, had. Uh, Done a lot of decades of work, award-winning work at ABC News, NBC. Uh, his, res- his reports have exposed government and corporate corruption around the world and helped bring justice to the disenfranchised. Uh, Mr. Ross is also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Madoff Chronicles. Based on reports for ABC News, he produced along with his longtime partner, uh, Rhonda Swartz, who has also joined the Law and Crime Network uh, as executive investigative uh, producer. And it is my privilege... Uh, to introduce you, Brian Ross. Mr. Ross, are you with us? I'm here, and thank you for having me. It's Brian. Yeah. yeah well, listen, we're happy that you're here. Uh, I can't imagine how busy you are. Uh, I remember watching you o- over the years uh, on ABC, <laughs> and uh, hey, man, well impressed with your work and your ethics. Let me say we thank you so much for what you do to inform America and and people around the world is much appreciated, and taking time tonight is, is just as appreciated as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, obviously, uh, these are full days as we covered the trial at the Law and Crime Network, and you know, today's testimony was stunning. I don't know how the jury or the family of George Floyd can, can keep every single day seeing these pictures. Uh, today, with yeah. this uh, doctor, the editor uh, who wrote the book on lungs and breathing. Uh, identifying the precise moment he said that life left George Floyd's body. It was just harrowing to watch. No, no, absolutely. And and, and Mr. Ross, you know, uh, over the years of all of your covering of stories and news, and uh, we were talking early in the program in regard to the impact, not only in the United States, but around the globe, the George Floyd killing and folks sitting in their living room watching a man die. Uh, right. What your thoughts of why this impact was such a great one around the world as, as it was? 
Well, first of all, George Floyd uh, did nothing more than uh, gave somebody a bill that might have been counterfeit. Who knows what he knew about it? Uh, and then the yeah. fact that it was caught on so many uh, videos, body cams, uh, different perspectives. And finally, finally, I say this, uh, you've got the, the blue wall has been broken. Uh, the police are now testifying against him. He has got support, of course, from his union for his legal bills. But the, the key testimony has been really, I think, uh, important to show that uh, uh, what he did was, from their point of view, way outside the line. But we've been doing reporting about the situation in Minneapolis, and there are a number of cases that haven't received the attention of the death of George Floyd, where people of color are arrested for jaywalking or a traffic stop and then are violently treated by the police. And none of the yes. officers in those cases are named Derek Chauvin. There are other officers who've done the same thing. No, no, absolutely right. And, and, and as we were talking about the culture uh, in police departments across the country, uh, and if you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with, right after the, the death of George Floyd, uh, social media platforms begin to release out dozens of videos that were showing police officers with their knees on the neck of suspects. And I yeah. remember seeing, I Absolutely. remember seeing one video and one of the officers, the guy had his knee on the neck immediately. The other officer pushed him off, uh, off of him completely to say, no, you can't do that. Uh, it makes you wonder as we've gotten into the world of technology at the levels and, and exposure, of course, with cams everywhere, uh, how many people have suffered these type of horrific actions that we know we don't know nothing about? Absolutely, and there some are caught on video. Most are not caught on video. Uh, there was a case in uh, uh, Minneapolis, a young man by the name of David Smith who had some uh, mental issues. Uh, he was acting strangely at the downtown YMCA, and they came, and it was the same thing, knee on the neck. They tased him, and he died. Not uh, probably from a heart thing, but it's not quite clear. But as part of a settlement with the city, between the family of David Smith and the city of Minneapolis, they insisted that every officer be trained on the technique you do not keep your neck on that person that long. And they actually had a video that was produced by the New York Police Department uh, shown to every officer at every roll call in Minneapolis to show the importance of you know what this can do, and we of course now seen this in the George Floyd case. Oh no, absolutely right. And Mr. Russell, that's your question. You were talking about how compelling uh, testimony was today. Uh, Dr. Martin Tobin uh, testified right. that George Floyd's death was caused in part by Derek Chauvin's knees pressing against his neck and back, making it impossible for him to breathe. And if you know the footage that was shown. Uh, with with uh, George Floyd in the in the in the store department uh, grocery store, uh, he was lucid. He was talking. He was m making right. movements. He wasn't showing any type of labored breathing or some type of high, if you will, that the defense in cross examination was making an attempt to try to paint this picture. But I thought the doctor's testimony today, Doctor Tobin's testimony, was absolutely point on but so damaging yes. to the defense's efforts to paint that picture. Your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, in, in every single way, the way he broke it down and made it understandable, at one point he sort of told the jury how they could sort of affect their throat to get that same feeling as if 
they had their breath cut off. And about 12 of the 14 jurors actually tried the technique of sort of pinching their throats to get the impression. And then one of the most important things, just, you know, in addition to identifying that very moment where he said life left George Floyd's body, there was also this key moment where he's sort of showing we could see how George Floyd was trying to use his hands as best he could to try to elevate his body on the right side just a little bit to get more breath. And he could not do it because of the way that uh, Chauvin's uh, knee was on his neck and he was pinned to the ground between the officers and the hardness of the street. He could not take in the oxygen. And as the doctor said, it was a low level of oxygen that led to his death. And I don't think it left any doubt whatsoever. No, no, absolutely right. And and David, you had something you want to share with uh, Mr. Ross. Yeah, Mr. Ross, I'm just curious. In, in your years of investigative reporting, I'm I'm sure you've covered police departments and and commentary from police departments on these type of officer involved uh, shootings, killings, or whatever. Do you see any sort of uh, cultural change outside of? Uh, the Minnesota Police Department and the and the heinous video that that would almost make anybody speak out against what happened to Derek Chauvin, is the mindset of police departments beginning to change any uh, from uh, from from your uh, experience and, and, and recent interviews of policing agencies? You know, I wish I could say that was the case, but I haven't seen it. And to the extent they try to paint. Uh, Derek Chauvin is that one rotten apple. That's a huge mistake because that's it's not one. There are all sorts of instances like this that uh, where the police are brutal and they're violent, uh, mostly the people of color, and uh, they get away with it. And whether uh, in this case they sure they may convict uh, Derek Chauvin, but there's a larger institutional racism there that the top brass admits there, and they just can't find a way to shake it. Yeah, and, and I believe, like you said, I was talking to our last guest, Professor Armour, and he was discussing right. unconscious uh, bias uh, uh, and went into to some detail on, on the unconscious bias. But some of this stuff almost appears to be conscious, uh, almost KKK-like, where we see a black person, let's go over and pull over and decide to harass them. It seems like it's more of a a conscious effort to go after African-Americans by some of these police officers. The, recently in February, you had the gentleman, I think out in California, that was, got pulled over for jaywalking, and he ended up getting killed. Um, and they yeah. just decided, and they're in the car talking about, uh, about, watch this, he's about to jaywalk. They get out, they start harassing him. The guy says, I'm not doing anything, and he ends up getting killed. I, I, it's hard for me to believe that these were unconscious efforts. It's almost like it's premeditated that we're going to, take a look, here comes a black guy, they see him coming, and then they decide they're going to go out uh, and just harass him, try to arrest him for almost anything, and in many cases, they end up killing him, because in some of these cases, it's almost rightful to resist arrest. I'm not doing anything. Exactly. I was talking with uh, Zoroslav Lederman. He's a civil rights lawyer in Minneapolis. This has represented a number of people who have been brutalized by the Minneapolis Police Department. His theory is that uh, these police officers have a uh, irrational fear of people of color, and they, they kind of are afraid of them. They have to overreact this way, which is crazy, but that's his theory of what's going on there, that they, they feel like they've got to use maximum force because they don't know what's going to happen. And, it, you know, this goes 
so deeply into the culture and the training and and how you hire people and how you run the police departments. And as your previous guest was saying, the fact that police are called on to enforce jaywalking or parking tickets or, uh, you know, lots of issues that really don't require our men with guns to go on the scene. No, for, without question. Man, Mr. Mr. Ross, this was something that's really stood out to me today. Um, I'm going to play a, a quick uh, clip for you where George right. Floyd it begins to tell the officer, I'm claustrophobic. Please don't put me in here. Please. He even said, uh, when as far as to say, man, just sit me down. Just sit, please don't put me in the. And when someone is claustrophobic, uh, it doesn't take much to make them panic. So if you knew with knowledge that this guy was claustrophobic, he said, look, I'll cooperate with you, man, but please, please. And then he went as far as to say, which really wrenched my heart, when he said, would you sit in here with me? That was his fear hmm. for being alone in that dark car, whatever his mind took him that I'm claustrophobic. Man, sit in here with me. I'm going to play that clip, Mr. Ross. I'm going to get your thoughts on it. Let's okay. Play heart-wrenching yes i mean this man is begging he is saying to you before yeah. you ever so you have to know when you put this man on the ground he's handcuffed you have your knee on his neck if he's claustrophobic and feared getting in a car what in the world what in the world is going on here four I, officers I, with a suspect in handcuffs come on you guys, it doesn't make any sense, and there's no explanation. That's why uh, you can see what's happening in this trial. The prosecution has clearly proved uh, at least uh, one of the counts. And I think one thing, you know, for uh, your listeners and for everyone, uh, we shouldn't expect this necessarily to be a slam dunk because right. as heart-wrenching as it is to hear that, we have the defense making a case that, well, you know, Derek Chauvin, he didn't know what was going on. He was just trying to do the best he could. Uh, the suggestion of all the drugs and all that, even though the witnesses, are, I think, thoroughly debunked that, uh, yeah. you just need one juror to buy into that. Yeah, for sure. For, for sure, Mr. Ross. David? Yeah, and I think, uh, give me your thoughts on, uh, I've heard some uh, 
uh, technical legal analysis on HLN by their uh, experts there. But the, it seems so simple that uh, George, uh, George uh, uh, Detective Chauvin or Officer Chauvin had a responsibility under policy and training to turn uh, Mr. Floyd immediately onto his side when he was in the prone position and handcuffed and failed to do so even at the urging of his own officers. It just seems to me, how can anyone with, with these blatant violations of policies and and training be able to skirt? Sadly, it, it, it's still a scary situation, but isn't that enough that he didn't turn him on his side and the indifference he showed uh, all the way around to reject his own training, his own policy, and he, he he kept his knee on the neck almost like with this sociopathic type of look on his face, like, I really don't care that he's dying. I don't care if he gets care. I'm going to kill this guy. And his face in those pictures with the knee on the neck is just, it's just chilling, to, uh, to say the least. But don't you think that should be enough uh, to convict him that he didn't follow policy and turn him on his side when he knew that that, that sort of prone position could kill him? Well, the indifference and the, and the disregard for life are, are so obvious. But, you know, it's just remember, there are three different counts here. There's second degree murder, which is the most serious. Uh, there's third degree, which is about a 25 year sentence. And then there's manslaughter, which would be only a 10 year sentence. And with uh, sort of good time in the way it works in Minneapolis, he could serve as little as four years if he's convicted of the least serious of the charge. The one thing the prosecution, you probably noticed this, has done is they put on, you know, those young people, the children, uh, the teenagers, because there's an aspect of Minnesota law that if this if you commit a crime in front of a child, it enhances the sentence. So you can clearly see they're going to try to do that. And they're trying to build that case. I think they feel that a manslaughter conviction would not be uh, a victory for them. That would be a defeat. Exactly. Oh, for sure. And Mr. Ross, we want to be respectful of your time. You still have a few more minutes to hang with us. You bet. I'm enjoying it. It's great what you're go- what you're doing here. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back, ladies and gentlemen, with Brian Ross, chief investigative correspondent at Law and Crime Network. Um, and I'll tell you what, give us some clear perspective on this. We're very appreciative of his presence and his input on this show. I think the information is absolutely informative, needs to be told. We're going to deal with the issue of the impact of George Floyd, his killing, and then the protests that have shook a world, not a nation. It has shaken the world. We're going to deal with that and get Mr. Ross's thought on the other side of this break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, 
we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Look, right now, uh, while you're looking at this on your screen in your hand or on your computer, there's somebody just like you who's sitting in a prison cell. And they didn't do much more than you did, you know, some crazy weekend. You didn't get caught. They got caught. And they can never get uncaught. The United States of America is now the number one incarcerator of human beings in the world, in the history of the world. Uh, we have about 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, we are, we have more people locked up than China. China, who has a billion people, they got fewer prisoners than we do. You know, a lot of times people say, well, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Really? Have, have you ever committed a crime? You got people who are doing more drugs in on college campuses, in uh, uh, yacht clubs, country clubs. We all know that's going on, but the SWAT team never shows up there. The SWAT team shows up in the housing projects where you got poorer people doing fewer drugs and those people go to prison. But think about it. What if one of the times when you were breaking the law, when you had something illegal in your pocket, in your car, at your party, the police had kicked in those doors, would you want to be known for the rest of your life based on what happened that night? That is what is happening to millions of people. If rich folks' kids get in trouble, they go to rehab. Poor folks' kids get in trouble, they go to prison and you spend $100,000 per year per kid to lock a kid up. When you could have spent a fraction of that and turned them into a NASA scientist, turned them into a, a fashion icon. When people come home from prison, they're not given the opportunity to start over. You leave a physical prison and you go into a social prison where you can't get a job, you can't get a student loan, you can't rent an, rent an apartment. How are people supposed to start over? And what happens to neighborhoods when you take a disproportionate number of people out for minor offenses and you send them back home with no hope and no opportunity? There are no more excuses to have this horrible system continue when there is now finally bipartisan agreement that it is a tragedy to do this. Not only do you have President Obama and the Democrats, you now actually have uh, people like Paul Ryan, Koch Industries, Newt Gingrich, all saying the same thing. We are locking up too many people, we're wasting too much money, we're, we're wasting too much genius in America, and it's time to do something. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. 
It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prison and in federal prison. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as we have had the opportunity, as difficult as it has been, to relive the senseless killing of George Floyd uh, in situations that, at minimum, are very, very troubling. Uh, We have been so honored tonight. We had the opportunity to have... Uh, Jody Armour on earlier, law professor at the, at the University of Southern California, gave a clear perspective and really an icon in the media uh, kingdom, if you will, Brian Ross, uh, who has been reporting on things as, as long as I can remember. Uh, and we're honored to have him uh, with us tonight as we conclude our final segment of this show. Mr. Ross, are you there with us? I'm here. You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Mr. Ross. And I wanted to talk about something. I'm going to play a clip real quick in regards to sure. the impact of the protest. We talked about that briefly earlier, and we're going to dig into that a little bit. Uh, unprecedented numbers of people around the globe that came out in an outcry, if you will, of what they saw with the death of George Floyd. And it just propelled higher and higher uh, uh, to higher ground, if you will, as we begin to look at this. I'm going to play this clip a report regarding the protest uh, at the death of George Floyd. Let's play the clip. Tonight, in city after city, calls for justice continue to fill the streets. I'm frustrated and I'm angry and and I feel powerless. Yes, we are upset. Yes, we are hurting. Yes, we, we, you know, we want to go crazy. But as protesters march, police monitor, standing by, bracing for nightfall. Across the country, what started as peaceful gatherings protesting the death of George Floyd devolved into destruction. From New York, where police and protesters squared off in the streets, to Portland, where the mayor issued a state of emergency and a city curfew. Everyone off the streets by 8 p.m. after crowds set the city's justice center on fire. And in Los Angeles, crowds flooding the freeway, fire burning well into the night. 
In Oakland, a federal security guard was shot and killed overnight. Officials are still trying to determine whether this was related to the protests happening nearby at the same time. Our Joe Fryer is in nearby San Francisco. Protesters today marched through the streets of San Francisco, coming here to City Hall for a peaceful rally. Authorities hope to avoid a repeat of what happened last night in Oakland, a night punctuated by fires and tear gas, with 60 people detained for looting and 13 officers injured. Tense moments for this news crew in Louisville, Kentucky. A local reporter for NBC station Wave 3 pelted with officer-fired pepper balls on live TV. And in Atlanta, the governor issued a state of emergency after cars were set ablaze, including a police cruiser. Crowds descended on the CNN Center, defacing nearby restaurants and hotels. All of it despite this plea from Atlanta's mayor. This is not a protest. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. This is chaos. A protest has purpose. We are better than this as a country. Go home. Go home. But amid the broken glass, a different gathering. Volunteers bringing brooms, gloves, and a will to restore their city. And I just want to show my kids the right thing to do, you know. Um, this is my city. We're going to wake up and we're going to start cleaning up. And Blaine joins us now from Atlanta. How is the city preparing tonight? Hosanna preparing with more resources and more rules. Take a look behind me. It's looking much different here than it did this time last night. You see that the crowd is confined to a much smaller area. Police in a more concentrated area with zip ties. I'll show you right over here. This is one of the areas that was defaced. Well, as you can see, there are now barricades blocking the crowd. And then finally, Jose, I'll show you right back here. We're seeing more police vehicles moving up sooner than they did last evening. Jose, we've just gotten word that Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has issued a per for the city of Atlanta starting at 9 p.m. tonight. Protest, outcries, tears of pain, fear of horror that took place in the killing of George Floyd. Protests in numbers that we have never seen before, we saw here. Uh, Mr. Ross, give us your thoughts, as I'm sure you covered much of that. Uh, it was something that was overwhelming. As you look on TV screens, on every news station available, and you have crowds by the thousands, uh, in Australia, in England, in foreign places, and then in almost every state in the United States, what we saw was unprecedented. Give me your thoughts and your insight on that, and what, what does that tell us as a, as a nation? It tells us that anyone who has a sense of right or wrong, who's been raised in a faith, uh, who has a conscience, uh, cannot stand silent as uh, this happens. Uh, and it's not just uh, George Floyd. It's happened again and again. It is, that's it. It's too much. It's over the line. And people have rightly raised concerns, uh, for the most part, largely peaceful, and have done the right thing in sort of seeking justice, uh, beginning with changes in the police department, beginning with the prosecution of the officer accused in the murder. Uh, it, you, you can't see that video or those various videos 
and say, I'm, it doesn't concern me. It concerns everyone. No, absolutely right. And uh, as we have had our uh, done our best to uh, get inside, uh, a little insight, if you will, into the minds of people and what they're thinking, the average person uh, that you know in, in communities everywhere are troubled uh, by what we're oh, seeing. Yeah. I think, and I, I think, Dave, you had a comment that you want to add from, to Mr. Ross. Yes. One of the things that really, I mean, when I saw the protests here in the U.S., I wasn't really surprised. I was surprised how big they were, but I wasn't surprised that we were having the protests. What really surprised me was the worldwide protests. You saw huge protests in Australia, in England, in, all across Europe, even in Russia. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is in your time uh, reporting on these types of things, what did you think when you started seeing those worldwide protests? Well, I guess I was uh, proud of the rest of the world for understanding uh, what was happening here and speaking up about it and taking action, if only to march in the streets with banners. Uh, you know, it gives you, uh, in a way, a, a new hope and faith in uh, our uh, world community that we won't stand for this. No, absolutely right. And I've always said this, uh, Mr. Ross, I've made it clear that uh, this is a human situation uh, yeah. that it affects the human race. And I think that's why the numbers we saw worldwide is because this became a human problem. Uh, and I think once you see it as a human issue, uh, as well as a racist issue, but really, I believe that's where people became troubled. Because what if that was my son? What if that was my father? Uh, the Floyd family has had to live through that nightmare. I think we have a caller, Mr. Ross. Give me one second. Yeah, we have uh, sure. Bianchi who wants to make a comment about the George Floyd situation. Punky, thank you for the call. You're live. The, the officer has been <clears throat> accused criminally. And okay. the all the jurors had to be convinced in Minneapolis. Now, the question is, is did the did uh, the officer do anything wrong as he was trained or the way the policy is written? Now, listening to the back and forth between the prosecutor, the prosecutor is doing a very lousy job. You got to show the, the defense is wants to know well, should want to know. I don't know if he had or not. What type of training and what did the training stipulate when you utilize that type of technique, that tactic? <clears throat> that tactic was allowed by Minneapolis Police Department. Now, in the training, did the training say that you're supposed to do it for five seconds, 15 seconds, a minute, or what? That's where it's going to fall down onto. And and I believe, you know, that was the point that uh, David spoke to earlier is that part of that training was for the officer to turn George Floyd onto his side after being pinned in that position uh, for for that while that he was pinned there. So that is part of their training. That is part of the process that when you do have an assailant, a suspect, any person in handcuffs and you have them restrained in that manner that you need to get them to their side so that their lungs are and their diaphragm is able to uh, get breath into the lungs to inflate and deflate so that, you know, like in the case of George Floyd, they don't become asphyxiated. And at the end, 
end of the day pass away with well, the officer's knee on their neck well, for nine and a half minutes. Well, Cliff, to, to that point, uh, thank you, Colin, for your call, for your comment. Uh, the bottom line is, in, in, what I, in my view, uh, the prosecution has proven no such tactic, period, should have been used. There is no tactic of knee restraint that is sanctioned by the police department in Minneapolis. Is that your same view, Mr. Ross? I believe the testimony is that it is permitted on a reasonable basis. but the On the neck or the back, officer, Mr. Ross? Well, it's called the neck or back restraint, and it, it probably is allowed at a reasonable amount. They do train it, but the reasonableness is what's what's key here. And the senior officer, one of the most seniority in the Minneapolis Police Department, a white guy, Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman, testified it was totally unnecessary. His direct supervisor, the sergeant, said the same thing. And the chief of police, Arizondo, was on the stand this week saying he did everything wrong. Nobody on that jury right. could possibly believe after that testimony that what he did was part of policy or that he was trained to act that way. Yeah, and there was not there was no such violence that deemed that action necessary. Uh, period. There was no such action, uh, and I heard that in the testimony this week as well. That there was nothing that justified uh, the actions of Derek Chauvin. There just was nothing there. Uh, and the fact is, the man is on his stomach. He's handcuffed behind his back. He is not a threat to anyone. And that's not five minutes later. That's immediately. He is restrained. Then as soon as he's restrained on that ground, you turn him on his side immediately. He was absolutely. He was restrained. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So I think uh, he was restrained under control. It doesn't mean. And, you know, they say that uh, Chauvin's unlikely to testify because the question every juror has to be asking is, why didn't you let him up? Why didn't you turn him on his side? And he doesn't have an answer for that. No, he does not have an answer. And uh, again, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, David, did you have a comment? Okay. Uh, one of those things, Mr. Ross, let me tell you, uh, I can't say thank you enough as we approach the end of this show uh, for you taking time. I cannot imagine your schedule uh, by any means. Uh, but for you well, to take I, the time. I'm honored to be asked, and I'd love to come back anytime. This is a fascinating conversation, and you guys are doing great raising all these important questions. Thank you, Mr. Ross. We appreciate that, and we will definitely uh, do our very best to have you back. Know that you have an ally here uh, at a Just Cause organization in AJC Radio, uh, and we'll give you a, Keep a up voice the good and work. a clap. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and I'm sure we'll be in touch, okay? okay. Thank you. You betcha. And there you have it, Brian Ross, Chief Investigative Correspondent at Law and Crime Network, uh, gentleman known for many, many years on ABC News, NBC News, uh, for a long period of time. Uh, we're very appreciative of his insight uh, on this story. Uh, we're going to continue to deal with these issues, folks. Uh, we're going to be back here next week. Please tune in. Uh, this show is available at our archive. Tell your friends, family, anybody you know to go out there. Uh, and click on today's date in the show. It'll be available, and I think people need to hear this conversation. Uh, and we're going to continue to talk because in unless we talk about it, but be about it, as they say, uh, you just can't talk it, you have to be about it. That's what we want to do here at AJC Radio uh, and have an opportunity 
uh, to discuss these issues. Many of them are tough. Many people don't want to step up and speak to it. Uh, Mr. Ross, a very special thanks to him, Brian Ross, and a very special thanks to law professor uh, Jody Armour. Until next time, America, this is AJC Radio. Good night. What you've seen in previous nights, I think, will be dwarfed by what they will do tonight. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! One man's pleading. Please! Please, I can't breathe! Please, man! Now a rallying cry for demonstrators demanding justice for George Floyd, an unarmed black man who died while a white police officer pressed his knee into Floyd's neck. The words Floyd said over and over again in the minutes before his death. Gwen Carr's son had the same dying words four years ago while in a chokehold by police. We have to send a message. We're not just going to sit still while they kill our people. They come into our neighborhoods. They brutalize. They terrorize. They murder us. And then it gets swept under the rug. State officials bracing for more violence say it's not the answer. The situation in Minneapolis is no longer in any way about the murder of George Floyd. This is about violence, and we need to make sure that it stops. I want to be very, very clear. The people that are doing this are not Minneapolis residents. After another night of escalating unrest, the governor is readying his full National Guard, a first in the state's history. And the Pentagon has put military police units on alert to descend on Minneapolis, where Floyd was killed. We can have troops on the ground very quickly. The president criticizing authorities in Minnesota for allowing the escalation. They've got to get tougher. They've got to get tougher. The morning after... Citizens clean their streets, charred and still smoking. Fires and outrage spread far beyond Minnesota. Protesters have poured into the streets in dozens of cities, many turning violent. If you want change in America, go and register to vote. That is the change we need in this country. I call upon our city and our nation to exercise great restraint even while the president tries to divide us. The officer was captured on video pinning Floyd down by his neck faced murder charges Friday, but three other officers who were involved in the incident have yet to be charged. Now, the U.S. Attorney General commenting on the protest Saturday vowed people will be prosecuted and said the system right now is working as it should. For City News, I'm Karen Seolin.